Introduction Welcome to our audiobook, Edeklun, Pathways Under the Peat. We're going to hear the story of a remarkable archaeological site that was discovered in a quiet lowland setting near the border of counties Leitrim and Roscommon in the Midwest of Ireland. The site was found during preparation works for the N4 Dromodruski Bypass. This relatively short 10 kilometer of dual carriageway runs through a landscape shaped by water. At its northern end are drumlands interspersed with small lakes, while its southern end skirts the margins of the boggy wetlands of the nearby River Shannon. Along this route, archaeologists from CRDS Limited, on behalf of Leitrim County Council and Transport Infrastructure Ireland, excavated 14 sites dating from the Neolithic to the early modern period. This audiobook, produced on behalf of Transport Infrastructure Ireland, tells the story of the sites excavated in Edeklun and its neighbouring townland of Thomasky in County Longford. This is a tale of older routeways that ran through this landscape and of their discovery in 2006. It is a tale of construction, travel, rituals, craftsmanship and discovery. But central to it all is the landscape that envelops it. The level of preservation at wetland sites like Edeklun offers many opportunities that are lost on dryland sites. So this audiobook will introduce you to some of the experts whose meticulous work and insight tells the story of Edeklun. The place, its environment, and the people who passed through it long ago. Uncovering Edeklun. In advance of every road scheme, every effort is made to assess what archaeology might be encountered. Sometimes, however, the land manages to hold on to its secrets until the last moment. As described by Cathy Moore, the Director of Excavations at Edeklun. Well, actually, when we first arrived to Edeklun, we arrived to a green field. And it's been one of the biggest lessons that I learned about uh, peatland archaeology was that it was it was reclaimed bog and it was a simple green field, looked like every other field in that area. But just 10 centimetres below the surface, there was perfectly preserved organic wooden trackways. And it's a real lesson for me that a reclaimed bog can still actually hold really well preserved uh, peatland archaeology and, and wooden structures in ex excellent condition and uh, no deterioration at all whatsoever. So we arrived to a green field, but we found out quite quickly that we were dealing with a really big complex of structures in the bog. As work advanced, the significance of what was being uncovered became clear to all. Archaeologist Orla Egan was working with Transport Infrastructure Ireland's National Roads Office in Roscommon. I suppose when I first saw Eder Clune, um would have been at the, the you know the investigation phase, and I, I suppose didn't give it too much um, too much thought in that it, it seemed like it was only going to be a small scale site, kind of some kind of trackway or, or, or small kind of uh, brushwood pathway and that. But I suppose when you see you know arrive at site and there's a whole team of archaeologists and, you know, massive areas are being opened. And, um, you you know, when you're visiting on a, a regular basis, which which would, would be part of my role um, and you, you see 
different layers being exposed. And I suppose the excitement of that and, and the, the scale, the scale of that um, was 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 huge. And it, you know, it was very exciting to visit the site uh, on, on a regular basis. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd say most days it was out, there was some kind of art, amazing artefact um, that, that might have been just found or and, and just the enthusiasm of the archaeologists was, you know, was it was a great feeling to be part of that. Wetland archaeology poses some challenges compared to the excavation of dry land sites, but many opportunities too. Conor McDermott works at UCD School of Archaeology and has many years' experience surveying and excavating wetland sites in Irish bogs. Wetland archaeological sites bring a number of challenges. Uh, fundamentally, they are an archaeological site like any other, and the archaeologists are still trying to ask many of the same questions. Uh, and we should be trying to achieve the same standards and quality of work. But the ground moves, <laughs> you sink, <laughs> you have the strange uh, views of people pumping water out of one end of an excavation while using watering cans to pour it back in again, because you're always trying to maintain the organic materials at just the right level of preservation while still allowing you to go in. Go away for a long weekend and you may lose a day just pumping the site out. So uh, the preservation, it's all about the preservation and the organic remains and the care that needs to be taken in handling that. Robust timbers, the timbers look robust and large, but you can drill your finger into them because their physical uh, substance has degraded over time. So you need great care and caution, uh, skilled people, lots of people hanging from planks. Uh, so lots of logistical problems that you, you wouldn't have on, on uh, dryland excavation. But for all of that, it repays many times in terms of the quality of the evidence you recover, uh, the quality of the artefacts, the environmental evidence. Um, so uh, it, it can be a unique challenge, uh, particularly if you've never worked on a wetland site before. Uh, but it is still an archaeological site and needs to be tackled to the same standards and, and with the same kind of questions. These were exactly the challenges met by site director Cathy Moore and her team at Ederclun in an excavation that began on a cold April morning and continued through an unusually dry Irish summer. Daily on Ederclun we could encounter all sorts of challenges in trying to trying to manage that archaeology as we exposed it. So as we exposed the trackways and the smaller sites, they looked pristine. So we would uncover these golden pieces of uh, round woods still with the bark intact. Sometimes the leaves would still be attached. And within minutes, they were turning dark brown. And within a matter of hours, if we weren't careful, they were starting to desiccate and to split open. So we found ourselves having to uncover sites and then keep them damp and cover them up almost immediately, say with uh, heavy sheets of polythene, things like that to try and keep the sun and the wind off them if it was a sunny and windy day. And Ederclume was primarily a summer excavation. I think we had eight weeks without rain, which is practically unheard of in Ireland, in County Longford, in a bog, to the point that we had to actually pay somebody to bring water into us so that we would have a water source to keep the sites wet. So we were constantly exposing the sites and then trying to cover them up uh, to keep them intact and then uncover them to record them and cover them back up again. A pretty challenging situation. This small team that started in April quickly grew with the scale of the job. So Ederclume was excavated by a huge team of, I think, 109 archaeologists at its absolute peak. And they came from, I think, 14 different countries. So it was a big international crew. And they were, they were archaeology students. They were qualified archaeologists, um, some very experienced archaeologists. But I think everybody at Ederclune learned every day, myself included, 
Um, you know, we were uncovering so much at such a pace and there was different things found every day. There was so many artefacts being found, different types of tool marks, different types of structures. You know, we were excavating a trackway in a line and suddenly it takes a turn to the north and you're excavating a whole new site. So every day was, was a school day at Eder Clune. Like the, the excavation team at Eder Clune are really to be commended for their hard work and dedication for a long period in sometimes really difficult environmental conditions. It was a really, you know, long and hot and dry summer, but sometimes it was also very cold and wet. But they were really enthusiastic, unfailingly enthusiastic, I would say. But part of that was down to the quality of the archaeology that we were uncovering and that every day really did bring something new and exciting. And so, you know, working on a site like that really is a privilege. Together, we are going to take a closer look at the trackways and artefacts that were excavated at Edeklun. Though to begin, we are going to look at what the environmental evidence can tell us about the landscape in which they were found. Setting the scene, the environmental background. One of the important opportunities offered by a waterlogged site is the quality of preservation of organic environmental evidence that doesn't normally survive well on dryland sites. This includes plant and wood remains, insect remains and pollen grains, all of which add to the story of a place and what happened there in the past. At Edeklun, both during the excavation and during the post-excavation analysis, a team of experts came together to examine these microscopic details that reveal a big picture. Um, my name is Nora Birmingham and I was brought into the project at Eder Clune to look at the context in which the archaeological sites uh, sat, so to look at the bog environment in which the human activity was found. When I think of Eder Clune, um, as an archaeologist, I think of it as this uh, wonderful opportunity to uh, delve into a landscape that um, we don't often get a chance to explore with, to the degree that we did at Ederclune. There are a handful of similar peatland projects, you might say, in the country um, that the work at Ederclune basically owes its genesis to. So Eder Clune built on uh, these tremendous kind of pioneering projects from the late 80s through the 90s, both in, in, in the bogs of County Longford and in Derryville or Lachine down in County Tipperary. Um, and because of those projects, Ireland was able to build up the skills and bring the skills in um, where we could develop the specialist knowledge so that when something like Eder Clune appeared for us and was discovered, we knew what to do. Like, we knew what to do. We didn't have any issue with what needed to be done or how we needed to do it or what was the best way of going about re retrieving the materials we needed for the analysis in the post-excavation phase. All that skill was there. Using the examples of the earliest trackway found at Edeklun, site director and archaeological woodwork expert Cathy Moore explains how the different strands of evidence came together. 
So what was really remarkable, I suppose, at working on a site like Eater Clune is the richness of the environmental evidence. And that's something that we, we rarely get a chance to examine in the detail that we were able to examine it in Eater Clune. For example, if we look at the early Neal- earliest trackways, the Neolithic trackways, we have Nora's work identifying the development of the bog and the early fen levels as the as the lake began to fill up and become, become a fen. We have Jill's work looking at the pollen in the wider landscape and that identified the trees were being felled at this time, that grasses and and weeds were taking precedence as agriculture was being uh, undertaken on the surrounding dryland. But then looking closer at the evidence from the actual sites, we have the work of Dr Eileen Riley and Eileen was able to identify insects from underneath that trackway that again uh, proved or identified that this was a fen environment, that there were open pools of water, that this was an acidic uh, landscape that the trackway was built in. Ingeliza then looking at the wood was able to identify different types of forests that were utilised in the construction of that site. So Ederclune 45, this lovely Neolithic path out in the fen was predominantly built of hazel. Now hazel doesn't grow around the edges of the fen so that would have come from at some remove, not necessarily terribly far away but from slightly drier conditions but there were other woods in there like alder and willow that would have been grown in close proximity. And then I suppose the final piece of analysis on Ederclune 45 would have been the woodworking and all the tool marks in that site were very clearly those made by stone axes of the first farmers in the area. In order to understand a site Archaeologists need to ask questions of the evidence they find. What is it? What is it made of? How and why was it used? Understanding the landscape it was situated in can help to answer some of these questions. That is why the environmental evidence from wetland sites is so valuable. So the the archaeological discoveries at Ederclune were made in um, an area of reclaimed raised bog, um, and this part of the raised bog sat on the edge of a much, much larger expanse of bog. And raised bogs in Ireland are they're common features of the, the Midland landscape. And their sequence of development is uh, very well understood in, broad, in a broad sense. Um, the ge- their general sequence is that um, a, a shallow water basin would become infilled with organic debris from plants growing in and around the margins of the basin. Over time, the, de- the debris accumulates in depth and expands across the basin and the edges of open water are characterised by plants such as reeds and grasses, flag irises, plants that you'd, you'd commonly see in, in, in this kind of wet, marshy landscape. Um, plants that like to have their feet in the water. This stage in the development is known as a fen and it's typically an environment rich in flora and fauna and full of resources that people want but can't always easily access. Um, As the fens uh, peat deposits deepen and expands, the fen surface sits higher and higher above the groundwater table and that removes the vegetation on the surface from the source of the water because fens are uh, fed by groundwater. And because... um, because the water table sits below the surface of the fen, there's a a change in the types, in the environment and in the kinds of plants that can live in that environment. So we have what's called a fen bog transition. And often we see this in in the different kinds of plant species that begin to occupy the surface of what was this groundwater system. And that transitional period um, is when 
plants like sphagnum mosses and heathers and uh, begin to um, occupy the surface and the environment becomes more acidic. It becomes probably less diverse in its, its biodiversity um, and it takes on a completely different character. Um, you know, it, it can have humps and bumps, hummocks and hollows, lawns, large extensive pools, and it's also a rain-fed system. And that's the crucial difference between the, uh, uh, the earliest development of this type of mire landscape or bog landscape is we move from a ground-fed to a rain-fed system. But at all times, you're talking about a system that is, is wet, unpredictable, uh, changeable, changeable um, on a, a, a daily, weekly, yearly basis, and then over much, much longer periods of time, it is quite changeable. And somewhere in that, that's where human activity fits within all that change. The thing about bogs is there's nothing static on a bog. It's, the bog is always moving up, it's moving, moving, it's shrinking, it's expanding, there's plants growing, there's plants dying, there's water accumulating, there's water moving on the surface or underneath, or through the bog. There's, it, it's a very dynamic living environment. And humans are, you know, we're building trackways and hurdles and splitting planks so we can get into parts of the bog that we couldn't necessarily otherwise get into or access. Um, so the gaps in time when, you know, where, where trackway, let's say, building um, doesn't occur, are pro maybe, not necessarily, but it may be because either there was no people in the area or they weren't bothered going into the bog at that time or because they didn't need to put down a trackway because they could get in. And other times you're talking about, it, well, are we in a transition? Are we going from a wet to a dry kind of transition? So you need to throw something down to enable you to access this area that you couldn't access before. Or is it the opposite direction? Is it going from dry to wet and you're throwing down a trackway so you can get in because it's getting too wet? Um, those complexities, they're really hard to tease apart to be fair, in, and particularly when you bring in the whole idea of how people act and what they want from their environment and what they're looking for. Um, they, they're not easy answers, I think, to these questions. But one thing that you can't get away from is if the wood is pristine, then it wasn't on the surface for very long. It had to sink or be enveloped by that peatland. And that makes you think about, well, how long would an individual structure been actually in use for? Are we talking a season, a year, 10 years, longer? One aspect of my work was to look at what's called the, the macro stratigraphy, the gross stratigraphy of the, the peat environment that the archaeological sites were found in. And um, the, the kind of the broad picture that I was able to create or not create recreate I suppose by looking at the stratigraphy you know but distinguishing between fen environment and a transitional environment and a raised bog environment all of that was just brought alive with Eileen's work on the insects. So Dr Eileen Eileen undertook analysis of insect remains from 
the sites that we excavated either clue. So the reason that this analysis is done in the first is that many insects, say like beetles or ants, they're habitat specific. And so analysing the peat from beneath the sites or within the sites allows us to reconstruct those environments. So Eileen looked at multiple samples of peat taken from underneath the trackways and was able to tell us then the exact ground conditions that those trackways were built on. So that really helped visualise what the bog was like when a trackway was being built. So, for example, Ederclun 45, which is the early, lovely, early Neolithic or lovely Neolithic tower, was built in a fen. And Eileen could identify that there were open pools of water in and around the trackway. But interestingly, she also found dung beetles. So she was able to tell us that animals were certainly grazing within the vicinity of the fen when that trackway was built. Then on other sites, perhaps, uh, this work was able to identify colonies of ants and much drier species that were living on the trackway surface. So that would tell us that some of the sites were actually quite dry when they were in existence. So it really it's very, very detailed work, but it gives us uh, a really complex and, and strong uh, image of what those sites might have been like. And it also tells us, of course, about the wider landscape, because some species aren't wetland or bog species, but they were imported with the wood or they were imported with uh, humans and animals using the trackways. And so you get glimpses of different type of beetles that were living in woodland that may have been exploited to build the trackways. So a real wealth of information can come or came from Eileen's work on Ederclune. I'm Jill Plunkett. I'm a paleoecologist at Queen's University, Belfast. Pollen's produced by all flowering plants um, and the pollen grains have a particular structure. So they're invisible to the naked eye. So you could probably line up 30 hazel pollen grains side by side and it would be about a millimetre wide. Um, so it's really, really small. It has a very specific structure. So when we look at it under the microscope, we can identify, oh, that's pollen grain from a particular type of plant. Um, it's produced in the thousands by every plant. Um, it gets blown around by the wind and moved around by insects. And then it's really resistant to decay. So it gets blown into a bog. Um, the conditions in the bog are perfect for the preservation of the pollen grains. Um, and the pollen is preserved within the peat. And then year after year, decade after decade, century after century, the pollen is accumulating. Um, so we can look at the different types of pollen and that will tell us what plants were growing in the surrounding area. Pollen analysis is important um, for archaeological investigations because it helps give us a context, an environmental context for the activity that's represented by the archaeology. It allows us to see the wider environment that people were, were living in, working in, um, and just getting on with their day-to-day -day things. So without the information about the environment, pollen is just one aspect of the environment, but without that information, we're kind of trying to imagine what people were doing against a, a green screen. We don't know what else was going on. We don't know how they were affecting their environment or how the environment or environmental change were potentially influencing what people did. Of course, most of what was excavated at Edeklun was made of wood from the trackways themselves to the artefacts deposited with them. Analysis of the different types of wood species used gives us information on both the broader landscape, how it changed through time, and on how people were using the trees that grew there. I'm Ingelise Stuyts and I was brought in to Ederkloon to look at the wood, uh, give advice on wood sampling. 
and with the wood identification. Wood species analysis is on a uh, excavation like Ida Kloon of utmost importance because it's basically the only thing uh, which you can find which relates to human beings. Uh, the rest is environmental, but any wood which is found in Ida Kloon in an, uh, that archaeological site, in that type of setting, is brought to the site by humans. So it's important to understand um, why is the wood there, what kind of wood speeches are represented, have they been worked? Um, so there's a range of questions which you can pose to the wood uh, fragments. Now, my part of it was the identification. That means looking at every individual lump of wood which came out and describe not only the wood speeches, so oak, elm, ash, uh, willow, etc., but also look at the quality of the wood. Is the bark around the wood? Is it in a good condition? Uh, is it rotten? Um, are the roots going through it? All those aspects can tell a little bit about um, a situation in which the wood was laid down and the longitudes, how long it was exposed to the elements. So, for example, if people make a pathway through the bog and they lay down some uh, wooden stumps in order to get a dry, keep dry feet, um, that's fine. If you only do it for a very short period, uh, you wouldn't notice anything on the wood. But if you do it for a long period, then the wood gets trampled and gets squashed. Also, when it uh, gets on the water, then it's below the oxygen, so it remains in that same state. However, if it's on the surface and the sun can shine on it, then it dries out, it begins to crack, and uh, roots can eventually... Uh, Plants can grow on the trackways and the roots can penetrate through the woods. So the quality of the woods is another aspect uh, which can help the archaeologist to define if a trackway or a toher was long or short in function. And also there are animals which can roam over the trackways and uh, they can lay the pool down and they can... Um, uh, put tracks uh, on the, uh, the wooden fragments as well, trample it further down, uh, which is also of extra interest in how were the paths being used. And then, of course, we have the artefacts. Uh, in Ada Clone, that was a substantial part, which is not common in this type of setting, but those artefacts are a glimpse in the, in the real world of humans who made those trackways. The site director, Cathy Moore, is an expert on archaeological wooden artefacts, another very important aspect of this excavation. So the artefacts deposited in the sites at Eder Cloon are really wide ranging. We have things like um, a lot of domestic wooden vessels, so bowls, dishes, there are tubs, there's one really large trough. There are things then like weapons, like spears, there are um, possible clubs tool handles, axe hafts, mallets and all sorts of weird and wonderful objects that we're not quite sure what they are. We also found a number of wheel fragments and Ederclune is the first archaeological excavation in Irish peatlands where we found wheels to, in direct association with sites. Bringing all the excavated material and the analysis of the experts together, we can now look at Ederclune through the ages, starting with the first evidence for people in this landscape. Making inroads. The first farmers arrive at Ederclun. 
1964, a local farmer named Johnny McGlynn was cutting turf near his home in Edercloon when he uncovered a relic from the time of the very first farmers in this area. A stone axe head that was still lodged in the top of its shaft. Perhaps it snapped before its owner abandoned or lost it. It is perhaps intriguing to think what that Neolithic farmer may have thought about his broken axe being on display thousands of years into the future in such a place as the National Museum of Ireland, alongside countless other broken tools and lost and forgotten items. So the earliest site that we found at Edercloone was a trackway which was about two and a half metres below the ground surface or the modern ground surface. It was a trackway that dates to around 3600 to 3300 BC. And this was built in the Fen, which is an early stage in the development of the bog. And it's this beautiful path, Edercloone 45, that was built meandering out across the Fen and winding its way amongst different trees that were growing out on the bog. This ancient trackway was just part of the enormous change that was being wrought across the Irish landscape in the Neolithic. The Neolithic represents the the, the period when farmers arrive in Ireland and farmers have a much bigger impact on the environment than hunter-gatherers. So in the pollen records, what we see with the beginning of the Neolithic is major disturbances in the landscape. So this is represented by the cutting down of trees, or the clearing of trees, uh, we see tree pollen decreasing in concentrations. And at the same time, we see an increase in things like grasses and other weeds that need um, a lot of light to reach them. So, th- so they thrive once the, clears, they, when, once the trees are cut back. Uh, so we, we call this, we, we can see large scale disturbances in some areas where lots of trees are cleared and large open areas are, are created. Um, and in other cases, we see woodland disturbance. So we, it might be that, that the areas that are being cleared are much further away from the site or that smaller clearances are being made. And some trees are still masking those those clearances. Um, so with the Neolithic in Ireland, we see many pollen records across the island showing the same kind of signal. We get large-scale wood, woodland clearance at the beginning of the Neolithic in or around 3800 BC. Clune, we see the classic Neolithic land clearance. Uh, specifically, we see trees such as oak and elm being cleared um, and then grasses and, and other weed taxa expanding. We don't see evidence for cereal growing. Uh, that could be because it's it, the, the cereal pollen doesn't travel very far. So the, 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 if they were growing cereals in, in the area, it, the pollen might not just sort of have made it to the bog. Uh, but we can definitely say that they were clearing land and creating grassy areas. Um, so in that respect, Edra Clune has classic signal um, at the beginning of the Neolithic. This trackway itself belongs to the earlier part of the period, a story told through the wood that was used in its construction. It deviates from the later periods in that there is no ash at all. And that's something we see in other uh, sites from Ireland. Ash only comes into being when uh, landscape is being more developed and opened up by the first farmers. So, in fact, it reflects that this uh, um, uh, toha was laid down when the landscape was not fully developed. The Neolithic in Ireland lasted over one and a half thousand years, a period that saw both natural and man-made changes to the landscape. As the Neolithic um, progressed, 
basically the fen area was continuing the fen was continuing to develop and expand so it was deepening it was it was it was expanding laterally um and uh it just it would have probably been a reasonably consistent environment over if you think about it over a long period of time until it reached the point where um the water table was too far below the plants on the surface and that at that point then in the bronze age we move from this fen environment into a raised bog environment and then the landscape changes because fens are very different um environments and ecosystems from raised bogs. The changes in local plant life are of course reflected in the wood chosen to make the trackways through the fen as it developed. Yeah, so like I think what you find in Torres is almost never a reflection of what's growing on the landscape. It is a choice what was locally available. Mm -hmm. uh, so the hazel in this period was uh, quite closely, uh, really easily accessible yeah. and, and usable. So it, it tells you because this was a fen area yeah. and dryland was easier accessible from this stage. Whereas later in time, uh, the dryland was further away, it was wetter and the composition of that margin changed because it was wetter. So yeah. later in time, you see, there is much more willow and willow like to have wet feet. Wet feet. So the dryland was pushed back and back and back. So the hazel was pushed back to the dryland as well. Though tiny, the pollen evidence tells an interesting story about what was happening on the land around the bog in the latter part of the Neolithic. Towards the middle Neolithic, where the level of woodland disturbance seems to, to have ceased, uh, so the trees start recolonising the area. And the, the later Neolithic, we don't see much evidence in the pollen record for activity surrounding the bog. A dynamic landscape and a changing world. Around the middle of the third millennium BC, Ireland saw the arrival of new people and new technology with the introduction of copper and then bronze working. Edeklund saw changes too, seen in both the environmental record and in the archaeological record. The fen had developed into a raised bog, and in the early Bronze Age, this saw another dramatic change. One of the things I looked at in terms of the gross stratigraphy at Edeklund was um, I noticed there was this incredibly sharp transition and a change in peace that wasn't typical between um, the fen and the raised bog peats above it. And just in some areas I was going, that's not normal. That's not a typical transition. And which I would then interpret it as being, okay, something's moved. This area has been truncated, something's gone. And then in looking at the, the, the tested amoebae, which help uh, reconstruct um, the uh, bog surface wetness, I could see that because there was a change in the species, in the microfauna, that the environment changed and it changed really quickly and dramatically. So instead of having a relatively diverse um, type of fauna that liked particular wet conditions, it just changed, bam, to a type of fauna that liked very, very dry conditions. And that also, so all of that tied in to 
show that this bog had undergone this cataclysmic uh, event. So if, if you want to think about the earlier part of the Bronze Age um, in Ederclue, um, you there's, there's basically been a raised bog has been in development for some time. And raised bogs are enormous water management systems. And raised bogs, as a result, can become uh, saturated and oversaturated. So they can basically become too full. And if it gets to a stage where they cannot manage the water that is coming into the system, which we must remember is of from above, it's all from, they're fed by precipitation, by rainfall. If it cannot manage that water adequately, the only place for it to go is out and the bog will burst. So sort of like a massive landslide. So the thing about raised bogs is you're gonna have these miniature little bursts all over the place at all lots and lots of different times, like from very, very small scale, to then these massive events in which um, tons and tons of peat will basically be shifted. The surface will be turned upside down, lumps of peat will move. If there are any alder trees or birch trees standing in the way, they're gone. They're, they're going to be pushed over. Um, and you can be then left with a very uneven, um, irregular, dangerous uh, surface, which um, most people, if they had any sense, would stay away from. We can only wonder what any witnesses might have thought of what must have been a shocking event. However, the pollen preserved in this bog at Ederclun does give us clues as to human activity around its edges. As we move into the Bronze Age, we start to see evidence for disturbance. So the, the tree pollen are fluctuating, they're coming and they're going. And that suggests there is human activity affecting the, the surrounding area. Um, Unlike other areas, we don't see large-scale clearance in the Middle Bronze Age and the Late Bronze Age. And Ederclun is very unusual in that respect because elsewhere we're starting to see a much bigger impact, uh, a lot more farming in the pollen records in other areas of Ireland, but not at Ederclun. This lack of evidence for farming activity in the pollen record for Late Bronze Age Ederclun might suggest that there were fewer people in the area. However, that stands in contrast to the archaeological evidence excavated by Cathy and her team. So the centuries of, of the Late Bronze Age at Ederclun were the start of a really um, unusual and very specific kind of phase of construction out in the bog. And it coincided with a drier period in the general climate. And I suppose the bog was more accessible to the people and they came out uh, to build a large number of structures there. So the period at Ederclun is characterised by the building of several really large trackways. They're all built to about over a metre in depth and the dating evidence from, from them suggests that they were episodically or periodically rebuilt over multiple centuries. So that in itself is unusual. But what's also unusual about these big sites is that we have three very large structures all running north-south, sort of following the same orientation um, in very close proximity. So that in itself, it's unusual to have so many large sites in such close proximity. But what's also unusual is their north-south orientation. So at Ederclun, the dry land is about 50 or 60 metres to the east. But these trackways are ignoring that and they're running within the bog. They're heading up to the north into the wider expanse of Ray's bog. 
So the level of activity that's represented by the trackways and the, the platforms at Ederklun isn't reflected in the pollen record, which is extremely interesting in itself because it's it, it's showing us that that activity is taking place without an, an, a level of intensive agriculture in the surrounding area. Um, and it makes us maybe look again at, at why these sites are being constructed because they're not simply functional sites to help people who are living right up at the edge of the bog. They're obviously being put there for other purposes. The archaeology may well give us a glimpse of these other purposes. The late Bronze Age saw the beginning of an unusual pattern of deposition of artefacts within and beneath the trackways. A wide-ranging selection of objects were selected for burial in a very structured way. So the deposition of artefacts at Edercloon is probably one of the most striking and unusual aspects of the complex and there really are no parallels for the way artefacts were buried at Edercloon. Artefacts are commonly found in trackway excavations. Uh, you always find something, one or two pieces, and sometimes you find a large number of objects. And generally they are interpreted as things that have been used, broken, discarded, and they're being uh, you thrown in as foundation material or just another piece of wood to throw into the trackway. But at Ederclune, what we encountered was very structured deposition. So, for example, in the bottom of Ederclune 5, which is a large late Bronze Age trackway, there was an object buried every metre to eight metre and a half along the base of that site. So that's really unusual and it's, it, there's very much a clear pattern. Again, in, the, in other sites, in the other sites of the late Bronze Age and Iron Age, the artefacts were generally concentrated in certain areas at the convergence of different structures or in certain parts of the site. And again, the artefacts are predominantly deposited in the sites. The deposition begins in the late Bronze Age and continues into the early Iron Age. So it's very much part of what's happening at Ederclune at that time. And although some of the things are broken and well used, some of them were never used. So there's a whole range in there. So I think it's very much a deliberate act. Trackways, by their nature, are transient sites. They are sites that people pass through. They're not settlements and burials or graves where we anticipate as archaeologists that we will find a lot of um, material culture. So to find so many in, in such a structured way at either clue, and it's definitely, you know, people are bringing those things deliberately out to the bog because they're not living there. They're coming out to build these sites and they're bringing those objects with them throughout many centuries in specific sites and in specific locations. So it is clearly very deliberate. One group of artefacts uncovered at Ederclun posed quite a puzzle until archaeological wood expert Inglis found the answer surprisingly close to home. One of the more remarkable finds of Ederclun was what we now call a walking stick. Uh, it was made from hazel and I did not understand it, nor did Cathy understand it. Um, we were thinking about it for a long time um, it was basically a straight piece which looked like it was contorted. Um, and I thought first that that was done on purpose. Maybe there was some kind of training involved by training two pieces of hazel together and eventually they grew together. That happens uh, with other species, but I have had never seen it in this way. And we found six of those uh, elements uh, in trackway uh, EDC 5 and EDC 26. Um, they all look very, very similar. So, as I said, like first uh, couple of years, I really had the idea this was done on purpose. Um, 
this was trains and this was remarkably uh, well polished and uh, it looked like a beautiful piece of art almost. And then very many <laughs> years later I saw a walking stick hanging from the wall of my parents-in-law. Uh, that was when the coin drops it, but that's it. And I took it from the wall and that was exactly uh, like the elements we had from Ida Klune. That was a walking stick, it was about 100 years old, had exactly the same pattern, but it was not a trained piece of wood. This was from a single piece of hazel uh, with a beautiful, like almost a line going around it. Uh, a few years later, I met a man in Holland who sold those things in market. And he is the only uh, um, walking stick maker, the Holstock maker in Holland. He's actually so unique that he's in, the, in an inventory of uh, national heritage in Holland. And we came in discussion, it is Jan Mil Wilming, and uh, he showed me various of his instruments and also explained how he collects them, how he finds them and how he makes them. Um, I'm absolutely convinced, as well as he is, that it's part of a very old tradition. In Holland it's hundreds of years old, only in one distinct part of the country, uh, since I found out that it can be found in other countries as well. Uh, in England, um, after the publication of Ida Klune, we actually were contacted by people in Germany and France as well, who suddenly, <laughs> they pop out everywhere. It's really, really impressive. And uh, the way they are formed is naturally. It's hazel, but it can also be other pieces of wood, around which a plant grows, the honeysuckle. And honeysuckle is also called woodbine. And that's because it grows up, it follows the sun in a circle around the stem, grows uh, very fast and over the years uh, hardens and squeezes itself into the wood. Uh, so much so that sometimes it disappears into the wood, you can't see it anymore, and then it suddenly comes out again. Uh, so it looks like it is twined around a piece of wood, but actually it is a parasite which squeezes the wood to suit its own purposes as a kind of like uh, a ladder to reach up towards the sun. The process of making these walking sticks today is a long one that takes a few years. It involves cutting the wood, drying it, exposing the woodbine, removing bark, polishing and applying lacquer. The process would have been very similar in the Bronze Age. It's quite unique profession. Uh, it's not only a walking stick, it has, in Holland it has really many ceremonial purposes as well, because it's not common. As well as giving us an insight into woodworking and perhaps also the significance of these walking sticks, these fascinating artefacts also tell us about yet another aspect of the lives of the people living near Ederklun and how they interacted with their natural environment. The hazel and the woodbine have sort of to grow at the same speed to make this beautiful, regular uh, curves. So it sort of gives the suggestion that the landscape was harvested on a regular interval. That uh, gave, it's like, like cutting down the brambles. If you cut down brambles, they start growing vigorously, faster and faster. 
is similar for the hazel and for the woodbine. If you harvest them on a regular interval, they come back with absolutely much power and strength and shoot up in the air very, very fast. So it tells me that on the dry land, there must have been um, um, a civilization or a grouping of people who managed woodland for their purposes. That means that they had a piece of wood which they set apart um, for generations, which they manage, manage for their purposes, for whatever purposes they do. Otherwise, this would not occur. The wheels found at Idaclun are important in their own right, but they also point towards a theme of continuity of tradition at Idaclun. So we found the remains of three wheels in three separate trackways at Ederclune. Now that in itself was unusual because it is the first excavation that has produced wheels in association with trackways. But it's unusual for other reasons because none of the trackways at Ederclune were actually suitable for wheeled vehicles. So the earliest wheel we found was a section of a block wheel which was buried in the base of a late Bronze Age trackway. So to describe it, it's like a very large um, approximately C-shaped piece of wood. It's massive. It's just over a metre in length. And like I say, it's like a, a, an imperfect C-shape and it's imperfect because the outer edge of the curve is not complete. And there appears to have been an error during its manufacture that they miscalculated the amount of wood they needed or the size that they were trying to carve and they essentially weren't able to finish the curve. So it became buried in the base of the trackway, whether, uh, well, the reason for that is, is debatable, but that's where it ended up. It never became a wheel. It was never finished. The other wheel fragments from Ederclune are really quite different. One of them was found, again, in the late Bronze Age levels of a trackway, and it is best described, I suppose, like a fragment of an iron tyre or a wheel rim or what could be known as a fellow. So it's like a very small carved piece of alder wood um, with a groove on the inner surface and there are small dowels through it. Now, the block wheel was never finished and it was never used, but this little wheel fragment actually ha was really worn on the outside and had gravel embedded in the surface. So this clearly had been used before it was found at Ederclune. And then finally, the third piece is a small fragment of another wheel rim or fellow. And it's, it's like the previous one, but this one was made of ash. And again, it had a gravel embedded in the outer surface, so it had been used as a wheel. But funnily enough, or surprisingly, it came from an early medieval site. So there's a very long chronological span, a chronological tradition, maybe, of uh, burying fragments of wheels at Ederclune. Throughout the Iron Age, the track building and artefact deposition patterns continued at Ederclune. The Iron Age is a rather enigmatic period where archaeological evidence is scant. So Ederclune represents an important opportunity to cast light on this era. Artefacts from peatlands in Ireland typically are single finds that have been found over many years of peat cutting. Um, when there are organised excavations, there, um, there have been sites like Anaholti and Corlay which have provide, uh, produced notable assemblages um, and Clunciana in, in Roscommon. Uh, but these are a small number of sites and the quality of the material that we find, we don't have well uh, documented Iron Age settlements or Iron Age uh, burials which are producing rich artefacts. Uh, these are the best evidence for any of this in the country. Um, Cathy and I recently had a conversation with a leading Iron Age specialist in Ireland who was saying if it wasn't for these type sites we would not have this evidence uh, to have a frank discussion about what is the earliest wheel in Ireland 
um, what, how did it function? How, how early does it go? And how that then ties into a whole range of other discussions that are going on about international parallels. Um, you just have no alternative but to turn to these sources for these sites. So they're remarkably important in that sense. Three examples of a very rare artefact type dating to the Iron Age were found at Edeklun. We found three spears in total in one trackway which is dated to the Iron Age. Now spears are, spear shafts are very rarely found in Irish archaeology. I can think of very, very few examples that I've seen or that I know of. But two of the spears were made from yew and they were beautiful, long, uh, very finely, finely pointed pieces of yew which had been smoothed along their length. Both of them were buried in quite close proximity in the base of an Iron Age trackway. But what was interesting is that neither of them showed any evidence for having been used. So the tips were finely, finely pointed, but both of them had been snapped in half prior to deposition. One had been broken cleanly into two pieces and the other had been bent as if somebody had put it over their knee and tried to snap it, but it failed, but it was torn. So they had been rendered useless before they were buried in the site. Then the third spear from the same site was quite different. That was made from oak and that was carved from a much larger section. And that would be actually a bit more typical of a spear shaft. Towards the end of the Iron Age, trackway construction seems to have stopped. Or did it? This is one of the questions that has challenged our specialists. Looking at that question, why did trackway construction come to an end in the Iron Age? I don't know, really. That's probably the, the fairest answer, is that there, there have bound to be, as you said, there's bound to have been changes on the bog, changes in the local environment. People might have wanted to do different things in different places. For all we know, they could have shifted 100 metres down the lake, you know, or the edge of the bog, and we just haven't seen this um, gap or we haven't, we just can't see their activity in the record at this particular location. It doesn't mean they weren't 50 metres away or 150 metres away. They could have been, but they just, for some, whatever reason, they were no longer building trackways or laying down trackways at the end of the Iron Age in this part of Ederclun. Early medieval Ederclun, continuity and change. In the early medieval period, one more trackway was built on the bog at Edeklun. So after that really intense period of activity in the, in the, in the Late Bronze Age and Iron Age, the conditions at Edeklun became increasingly wet on the bog and not surprisingly, trackway construction completely fell off. And we only found two sites that date to the early medieval period. One trackway from about the 7th to 9th centuries and then one much, much smaller um, deposit of wood. But what's interesting about that one trackway that we did find was that it too followed the north-south orientation that was very clearly the preference for movement in the prehistoric period. Now, it was built directly on top of a very large Late Bronze Age trackway and that in itself might have determined or influenced the site location in the medieval period because that big deep site probably formed a drier uh, linear kind of route across the bog. But nonetheless, people in the early medieval period still wanted to travel in a north-south direction at Ederclune Bog, which is really interesting continuity from the earlier period. And in addition to that, we still found artefacts buried in the early medieval trackway. And again, it's that continuity of tradition and practice at Ederclune that is really surprising. So was the local early medieval community using this routeway for the same purposes as their predecessors? The evidence certainly suggests continuity in terms of movement through the landscape, traditions of depositing artefacts during trackway construction and even woodworking. 
But this period saw also the beginning of more changes to both society with the arrival of a new religion, Christianity, and in the landscape. It's really only from the early medieval period that we start to see evidence for the landscape opening up further. Um, and particularly in the from the the later medieval period, um, the most noticeable clearances then occur from the from about the 18th century, um, where the land is starting to be cleared towards the level of openness that we see today. So Ireland has, in the over the course of several thousand years, gone from uh, from being a predominantly wooded area, so the area around Eiderclune would have been surrounded by woodland, um, to one that's relatively open. Ireland is one of the least forested places in Europe today. Um, and we can see the beginnings of that transformation to this open landscape. We can, we can track that back to the 18th century. As we know from the start of our story, this land was eventually reclaimed from the bog for farmland. In modern times, a road was built across it that became known as the N4 which in its turn has now been replaced by the new N4 Dromodruski bypass. So, in a sense, travellers are still passing over Edeklun, albeit a good deal faster than before, showing that some things truly never do change. Routes to Understanding The Legacy of Edeklun the story revealed by the excavation and the post-excavation research that followed gives a fascinating insight into activities at Edeklun. However, excavation is by its nature a destructive process, so nothing can be seen of the trackways or tours that were uncovered. Nonetheless, this excavation has left a rich and varied legacy from a number of perspectives. First of all, there is the archaeological knowledge that was created. An important part of Transport Infrastructure Ireland's role in projects like this is to engage the public in learning about the local heritage discovered during these road schemes. Ola Egan from TII explains how this is done. Disseminate the information in, ma in many different ways, and that would be through, um, say, publication of you know very scientific articles, um, through uh, books. We have a book on the Edeklune, uh, Between the Meadows is, is the name of the book, and you know a series of lectures, um, that we that would have been carried out over over the, the period. So it's it's quite a long period between the when a planning is approved and when you uh, I suppose publish the results. So it's it's over, I would say, a decade. Another interesting project came about through the Percent for Art scheme, where a percentage of the money for a road scheme is set aside to produce a piece of art. This is often inspired by heritage, as was the case for the N4 Dromodruski bypass. In collaboration with students from the local school, artist Niall Walsh engaged with site director Cathy Moore to look at the old trackways and relate them to the new road and how it impacts the local community. They come up with an art piece that is now displayed in uh, on the banks of the river at Ruski, and it's called uh, the N4 Not Bypass. It's what it's called, and it can be seen there today, just on the uh, yeah on the river bank uh, before you cross the bridge. Um, so it it's essentially it's about the impact of a local the local community um, 
the impact of a new road and local community and the pa- the past, which is the Tahers. So it's kind of a glass screen inbuilt into the ground and there's etchings of all uh, kind of um, an imprint of the, the Tahers or the brushwoods and that. And so it's, it's um, so it kind of, it, it kind of, I would say immortalises the site. We'll always, you know, Edercloon is remembered in that way for, forever as long as that art piece is there and it, it's local people can appreciate it uh, into the future. So I think it was quite a nice, um, different aspect to people learning about their heritage. But what of the beautiful wooden artefacts that were uncovered in the excavation? They have been conserved and will be curated in the National Museum of Ireland. Of course, they and all the other discoveries are reported in the excellent publication Between the Meadows, the archaeology of Idaklun on the N4 Dromodruski bypass. The legacy of Idaklun extends beyond the site and even the locality. It has contributed so much to our understanding of the past for Irish archaeology and wetland archaeology generally. To try and understand this legacy, we asked our specialists why they think Edercloon and the Edercloon excavations are so important. So Edercloon is it's important for several reasons. Um, excavations of this scale in Irish peatlands are rare. But even despite that, Edercloon doesn't really compare to anything that we've seen before. So that activity that we had at Edercloon during the late Bronze Age and Iron Age, where we had these huge trackways built and maintained and repeatedly uh, replenished or, or rebuilt over many centuries. But not only that, they were interconnected. So we had sites that were running between the trackways, allowing people to move uh, betw- coming from different directions, perhaps to move within the bogs, to join other routeways and perhaps those crossroads as they were forming platform areas in their own right. We've never seen anything like that in Irish peatlands and actually there's never been anything like that really excavated in any European peatlands either. So that in itself, so Edercloon, just for, for that phase of activity alone, it's something different and it's shown us a different way that people interacted with these peatlands. We've excavated and we've found uh, thousands of trackways in Irish peatlands and we know that they cross the bogs from dryland to dryland and we know that people m- built many trackways to go from the dryland out into the bog because people wanted to get out there for whatever they were doing. But we haven't seen before this uh, spaghetti junction where we've trackways coming from loads of different directions and all joining together to form this really complex network. So there was something else going on at Edercloon. For now, it remains unique because, as I say, we only do these excavations occur infrequently and maybe it will always be unique, but it's quite possible that there are other Edercloons out there. We just haven't seen it before. I think... Edercloon is extremely important because it makes us question our previous assumptions about trackways. Uh, we we know of thousands of sites, platforms, trackways from other parts of Ireland, and we had our views of, of what they were for. Um, but Edercloon has has so many of them. And in in terms of the, the later Bronze Age, Iron Age sites, they're piled on top of each other. So it's a, it's an extremely complex site. It's almost like a museum of, of sites that could be constructed in wetland areas. And they're all there at Edercloon. Um, so, so the complexity is extremely unusual in itself. But then on top of that, we've got the pollen evidence. And the pollen is telling us that they weren't doing widespread landscape wide landscape clearance at this time. So it's taking place in a, an almost natural landscape. 
unlike other areas where you get a lot of settlement, but they've cleared it, they've turned it into farmland. So it makes us look again at why these sites were being constructed. So I think it wasn't purely functional. It wasn't simply that they needed to do something out on the bog um, because they happened to be living in the surrounding area. They were coming from some distance. They were probably living um, at a distance from the site and were, were coming to Edercloon for whatever reasons it attracted them to it. Trying to find parallels for Edercloon is a challenge because we don't have that many large Iron Age assemblages excavated. But where there are substantial sites, like a Corley, uh, Clunchana, uh, and a Hulti, Artifacts do occur, and but in most of the, those cases, uh, the assumption has been made that it's to do with disposal. It, it, uh, however, the association of wetland deposition, we know these are periods where people would go to wet contexts and make uh, deposits of, of objects in non-functional ways. What's interesting here is that the material we're finding is organic. Uh, our museums are richly endowed with material from the Bronze Age and Iron Age that come from what we understand to be ritual contexts in wet environments, but none of those are organic. So one wonders whether we would have identified these if they weren't in association with trackways. If they'd been found in isolation, would we have realised that perhaps they had additional meaning uh, in the circumstances or our timing of their, their deposition? Um so it, these small number of examples are really, really important. And the sharpness of our, our uh, focus on this in either Clune has, has, has really uh, outstripped what we knew before. And it really does beg questions on some of the other assemblages and will pose new questions as we tackle new ones. I think the, the, the multiplicity of techniques yeah. that were used and approaches that were used on this project, it, it, that's, that's really, to me, that's really why it's special because it, it brings together all these different um, uh, research perspectives and, um, and avenues and that just illuminates different human activities at different times in the past in a really small, confined area of a landscape that was like, you know, to, to the west of Eder Clune, you're talking about a large open water body you know, massive lake system, you know, complexity of raised bogs in the wider environment, open, low-lying upland, but, you know, up and down, changing landscape. And then we have this pocket of organic material that we've been able to look at and investigate and really shine a light on, you know, what the communities in that area were doing, I think, at that time. That's pretty special. For Ingelisa too, one of the special things about the project was the people involved and what they brought to it. The collaboration with the other specialists. And again, I mentioned Eileen Riley, uh, the details of the beetle research, but also together in the, in the bog research from Nora and then the Jill with the pollen research, everything came together under exquisite <laughs> leadership of Cathy. Um, we worked so well together. It was just a sheer pleasure. Of course, the expertise in wetland archaeology in this country was inspired by the eminent UCD professor Barry Raftery, who excavated the famous Corlea trackways in the 1990s. Here, Cathy's description of his visits to Ederclune captures his interest in the site, as well as the passion for wetland archaeology that never left him. 
Professor Barry Raftery came to visit Eder Clune on a number of occasions and it was an occasions of absolute joy. Barry was just delighted to be in a bog, to be seeing trackways, being exposed to talking to archaeologists and even getting his hands dirty on occasion, just having a little a little bit of a rummage around. And Barry was there when we found the Eder Clune block wheel. And that was just a really, really nice moment to have him witness something so important and so significant being found on the site that day. With such an incredible archaeological time capsule lurking below the surface of a rather ordinary field, what are the chances of another Ederclune being uncovered in the near future? For now, it remains unique because, as I say, we only do these excavations occur infrequently. And maybe it will always be unique, but it's quite possible that there are other Ederclunes out there. We just haven't seen it before. My view is we're unlikely to encounter sites like that in the future because, you know, times are changing at the moment and, you know, climate change is, is a big part of our lives at the moment and, and, and on a you know, global and a national level, level and climate change policies. I know on, say, um, you know, national road schemes, you know, we're, we're probably not going to be going through large tracts of bog anymore. At least we, we, we will, you know, we'll be reducing our impact on bogs and trying to preserve them. And it's all about the carbon footprint and reducing that. And that's a big part of our agenda now. So we're unlikely to, you know, to have an opportunity to excavate a, a site like that on that scale. Conclusion. For 6,000 years, people have been passing through and across this small piece of land in County Longford. As the landscape changed, they continued on journeys only made visible to us by the trackways that carried them, their animals and their belongings to unknown destinations. We can only understand their lives by looking through the keyhole that Ederclune provides. It allows us to see the wood the trackways are made of, the other environmental evidence preserved by the bog tell us about the landscape they lived in and how they interacted with it, while the objects they deposited with the trackways tell us more about their society, its connections, traditions and beliefs. They have passed us by on their journey. We can only follow the tracks they left behind. We hope you have enjoyed this audiobook, which brings together the wealth of evidence discovered at Edeklun by telling the story of the place and its people in the past. The archaeological works at Edeklun and on the N4 Dromodruski scheme were a collaborative effort between Transport Infrastructure Ireland, Leitrim County Council, Roscommon National Roads Office, CRDS, and the many archaeologists and specialists working on the scheme. For more details and analysis of the archaeological discoveries at Ederclune, you can explore the publication about the excavations entitled Between the Meadows, the Archaeology of Ederclune on the N4 Dromodruski Bypass. You can discover more at tii.ie. We hope you've enjoyed listening to the experts involved in the work at Ederclune. This audiobook was written by Sharon Green and Neil Jackman, with the support of Orla Egan and Ronan Swan of TII, Cathy Moore, Dr. Nora Birmingham, Dr. Ingelise Stutz, Dr. Gillian Plunkett and Connor McDermott of UCD School of Archaeology. We would also like to acknowledge the immense contribution of the late Dr. Eileen Riley to the project. This audiobook was narrated by Jerry O'Brien. 
It was recorded at Bluebird Studios with sound engineer Declan Nonigan and producer Neil Jackman. You can find more audiobooks and audio guides from our website at abartaheritage.ie or on your favourite podcast platform. <laughs>